This is Speaking of Writers. I'm Steve Richards. The founding fathers are often revered as American saints. In the book, A Republic of Scoundrels, edited by David Head and Timothy Hemis, chronicles the founders who were schemers and opportunists vying for their own interests ahead of the nations. However, within the founding generation lurked many unscrupulous figures. They were turncoats and traitors, opportunists and con artists, spies and foreign intriguers. David Head is a history professor at the University of Central Florida and is the author of A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, the Newburgh Conspiracy, and the Fate of the American Revolution. Tim Hemis is an assistant professor of history at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. He graduated from the University of Southern Mississippi. Timothy's teaching focuses on early American history and American military history. He also serves as the regional coordinator for the Southwest for the Society for Military History and is the history book review editor for the Presidential Studies Quarterly. Happy to have David and Tim join me now here on Speaking of Writers. Welcome to this program. Well, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. So the big question, why were there so many scoundrels during this period of time? Yes, there are a lot of scoundrels. Um, and that's one of the things that, that Tim noticed. Uh, I think uh, Tim can tell the story of how he, he thought of the he, he thought of the idea for the book. Um, but one of the things we get into is why why were there so many scoundrels, so many people who are flouting the rules and uh, out for themselves in a political culture, which was just very strongly uh, sending the signal that only men who were virtuous, self-sacrificing, and willing to set aside their ambitions for the new republic could have any any whiff of power at all. There are lots of guys who just ignored that. I think part of the reason has to do actually with the uh, independence of the United States. So when the United States wins the American Revolution and becomes its own nation, this opens up a lot of new spaces in many different dimensions. So uh, in one respect, physical spaces. So the United States gains control uh, of the, what was then called the West, which is places like um, uh, Tennessee and Kentucky, Ohio, right? That's what the West is in the late 18th, early 19th century. And these are places where Americans start to pour into there. And there's not much uh, infrastructure, uh, there's not much law or, or order in those, uh, those places. So people can just set themselves up and uh, make their own rules as they go along. Okay? Um, there's also the kind of social spaces that are now wide open. There's not that monarchy, monarchical society with you know, the top down uh, and the expectations of deference. It's more democratic. Things are wide open. Okay? And you can be virtuous and self-sacrificing or not. And there's no clear rules really on uh, governing how people relate to each other. Uh, it's pretty clear the old way is cut off, but what's going to replace it? Some people replace it with go for yourself uh, as easily as possible. And then there's also opening the fact that America, uh, foreign policy-wise, the United States has to form its own foreign policy now as an independent nation. Britain is not governing how the, the United States, how the colonies relate to any other foreign power. So the United States needs to figure that out themselves. And one of the things we often forget that this, this is easy to overlook because we think of the 13 original British colonies and then the spread of America westward, that the United States shared a border with Spain for, for almost 40 years. And Spain is the uh, imperial power on the border with the United States. 
and Spain uh, has its own interests. They, they supported the United States during the war with Britain, because uh, Britain is an enemy of Spain. But after the war, you know, they don't want America's moving westward, right? They're challenging their, their domain in North America. So it's up to Americans to kind of make that policy. And, uh, you know, the guys who are actually out there on the frontier, on the border with Spanish territory, are those guys who are out for themselves, not necessarily thinking about what's good for the country as a whole. So the foreign policy is wide open and, and is being made in many respects by the men who are most concerned with themselves. How did you guys get together and come up with the idea for this book? I understand you were on a research trip in Philadelphia. Yeah, I I was doing research um, and I, I was looking at several things and several collections and I kept coming across different names that just started picking you know, they kept appearing. James Wilkinson and Aaron Burr all kind of just started appearing. And the one thing that kind of happened, you know, the world kind of shut down with COVID. And I threw out on Twitter. Well, then it was Twitter. I don't know what you call it now. But um, I threw out the idea of would anybody be interested in a, in a project about scoundrels of the early republic and i knew i could not go to all these different archives to do research by myself especially in the pandemic um and so david threw out the idea of doing a collaboration and that's kind of how we started building it together and it was through twitter and social media that this all kind of came together yeah it sounded like a great idea i mean first of all scoundrels are, you know you say and we're going to write a book about scoundrels. Like, okay, that sounds good just in itself. But um, as a kind of collection of different scholars' essays, sounded like a promising route. Because as Tim said, um, there's so many of these guys, and the sources are so various, and the expertise that you would need, right, to be expert in all these different guys and the connections they have, the sources that are often um, secretive, you know, they're, they're doing things in a clandestine nature. Just how one person could do that is going to take, it could take you 10, 15 years and all the travel, which wasn't possible in, in 2020, really. Uh, it would be much better to draw on the deep expertise of individual experts. And then kind of the two of us would kind of assemble that together and make it into one cohesive whole. So that is how we came together to have that idea of kind of an edited collection of different experts in these individuals made the most sense rather than trying ourselves to get up to speed and spend the next decade on, on the project. Um, so that really was much more efficient. And, you know, we, we not just efficient, we got a, a deeper, richer sense of each of these individuals because we were drawing on, in some cases, um, you know, some of our authors, they've been working on, uh, like, like Jim Martin, for example, who wrote about uh, Benedict Arnold. He's been thinking about Benedict Arnold for 40 years or more, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it would take me until I'm 80 to, right, to, to have that same kind of expertise. So so why not draw on the real experts? Was Benedict Arnold the greatest scoundrel of this period? Oh, man, that's a that's a tough question, because I, I would argue that probably James Wilkinson or Aaron Burr might be. I was going to say Wilkinson, too. Yeah. Um, just by I think just by sheer volume of scoundrelry, <laughs> like how often. How many different schemes he pulled off was involved in. Uh, I think Wilkinson gets the prize there. Uh, uh, Benedict Arnold. I'm sorry, I get Benedict Arnold and Aaron Burr confused because they both have A B initials. Um, 
So Benedict Arnold, of course, I think probably has the most dramatic a single uh, single action, right? It's the plot to turn over West Point to the British at a critical point during the American Revolution that if it turned out differently, could have changed the trajectory of the war and American independence and everything. So if you want to go by who had the potentially great, who would have potentially had the greatest impact from his scoundrel uh, uh, actions, probably Benedict Arnold. Uh, but who had the longest, richest career of being a scoundrel, then I would point to, to Wilkinson. I mean, I mean, Tim would send me um, uh, documents from his research, saying, look, look, look who showed up again in this other context. Oh, it's James Wilkinson. Well, guess where he is now? He's in this other context people are writing about him. He seems to have a hand in anything that's going on uh, along the borderland that's a little bit under the table in the late 18th and early 19th century. It's just incredible how it keeps cropping up again and again and again. Yeah, he really was all over the place, it seemed like. Are people like these scoundrels sometimes necessary to get a feel of the moral roadmap of a nation organization? I, I really do think so, because you have to find out what your boundaries are. You know, and I'm not talking about physical boundaries. I'm talking about your moral boundaries and what, what is acceptable. Um, I know, you know, Sam Watson, who wrote about James Wilkinson, has this phrase, um, this, you know, flexible morality. You know, it, it's it, that's an idea that we have to kind of figure out where where are our virtues and those types of, you know, things that we hold dear to ourselves, where are they at? And so you kind of got to figure out what those boundaries are. And yeah, that, so, that, that's a great way of putting it, Tim, because I'm you know, thinking, you know, little kids, right? They don't they don't know right from wrong coming out. Right. The way they learn it is by bumping up against the boundaries of what they're not allowed to do. Right. And finding out that, oh, no, that's that's wrong to run into the street, you know, because you know, well, they didn't know anything about it before because uh, somebody puts down a limit that they're not supposed to do that. And that's really the idea we have that, of a new country where the limits, the boundaries are not at all clear. We, again, we know what the country is not. It's not a monarchy. That's different from knowing what it is. And these guys are out there you know, testing all the time, prodding against what is allowed and what's not. What is the official um, you know, the words, the official line, the, the words about what's not allowed versus what actions are really not allowed. Um, and you'll only find out what actions are not allowed by somebody stopping you, stopping stopping them from doing what they're doing. Wilkins, for instance, for example, gets away with everything. Um, Tim, when, when did they, remind me again, when did they find out that that he was a secret agent? It's after he's dead. Yeah, um, I off the top of my head, I can't think of the date, but there's a lot of people that suspected it, but it's it's confirmed after he passes on. Uh, right, and um, Aaron Burr is another one who he really sets the definition for what treason is by, yeah. by his actions and his trial. Um, yeah. Of course, it's just one of you know. So if that had come out, so so the court, um, the the federal court, or it's not a federal court. Um, the federal court, you you can tell the story better, Tim, yeah. about about uh, Burr's uh, court case. So when, when Burr is put on trial for treason, it's they have to have a, what is the definition of treason? And John Marshall, who is a Federalist, comes down and says it has to be an overt action. And that is what all the whole case hinges on, is the concept of an overt action of an insurrection or, or whatever. Um, and Burr never actually committed an overt action, which then got him acquitted from that. 
Right, and that sets the tone, and not, this, not just the tone, but that sets the law on yeah. the treason and the years that follow. You can imagine that if Marshall had not been so strict in his definition of what was needed for treason, you can see how uh, politicians would have accused each other of treason all the time, um, and would probably have trials over treason, and it would have been kind of one of those tools in the politician's toolkit to get at their opponents. But because treason was defined in this very structured way early on, Okay, well, treason trials and exec I mean, executions for treason of your political enemies, that's off the table, thanks to what Byrd did. He, of course, he obviously didn't set out to do this, but um, as a result of his, his actions, it sets the definition of treason and a precedent for the future. We touched on uh, James Wilkinson, Benedict Arnold, Aaron Burr. I want to ask you about a couple of other uh, scoundrels here, Charles Lee and John Connolly. So Charles Lee was um, a, a general on the American side during the um, during the American um, Revolution. He was uh, British born and British trained, and you know the, the some of the, the early thinking was that that he was probably the most skilled um, general on the American side and someone that the British certainly uh, thought would be more dangerous than Washington, whose previous uh, military experience was only as a colonel during the um, uh, French and Indian War. Uh, not, you know, European trained officer like Lee. Lee um, Lee's a good example of how there are different kind of levels of being a scoundrel, different ways to be a scoundrel. In many ways, Lee simply had the bad luck um, to oppose Washington, right? So he has the temerity to challenge the man who comes to be identified with the revolution and all good things American um, following out of it. So um, his scoundrelly is really, being a scoundrel is really about he's on the wrong side. He is a critic of Washington, and um, Washington came out of the war glowing, so all of his critics must have been terribly wrong. That was the interpretation that was given early on. Uh, Lee, you know, he's it, one of these guys, uh, Washington provoked two reactions from his officers, either glowing admiration or a kind of, well, I'm I could do better than him, right? a kind of contempt from some of his other officers. Lee is in that contempt kind of camp. He thinks that if he was just given the chance of command that he could lead much better than Washington has, what makes Washington so special? He doesn't have anything that I don't have other than good fortune. That's kind of the attitude Lee has. Lee also has the misfortune of being captured and taken prisoner of war during the war, uh, which never happens to Washington. And uh, Lee writes this mysterious, uh, well, today's his purpose of writing this letter is mysterious. It's kind of a letter to the British commanders recommending to them some strategies they could take if they wanted to end the war quickly. Right? So how, kind of a roadmap of how to beat the United States. And this gives him a terrible reputation as possibly a traitor. Right? Why are you giving this information to the British? Well, the scholar who wrote that chapter in, in the book, uh, Mark Lender, he points out that Lee you know, really wasn't giving the British anything that they couldn't have already known. Um, there was nothing secretive really in it. They could have gotten that information from other sources they already have. And probably just common sense stuff. You know, like, you know, divide your enemy so you can conquer him more easily. And you're like, Charles Lee's not inventing that, right? That's, you know, anybody can see that. Um, so why he's writing this is mysterious. Possibly he wants to ingratiate himself with the British. Possibly he's just bored being a prisoner of war for, for you know, for months at a time. So that's, uh, that's, that's Charles Lee. So he gets a reputation as a scoundrel that is in many ways not well-deserved. Um, and it uh, comes from the politics of opposing Washington. 
Now, the other character that, that you mentioned, Tim can talk more about him, um, uh, John Connolly. So John Connolly is a guy who's kind of on the fringes of our story. He doesn't have his own chapter. Um, uh, but he is one of those characters who shows up from time to time. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about, uh, about Connolly, Tim? Yeah, uh, Dr. John Connolly, who, who appeared in D Lord Dunmore's War uh, slightly before the Revolution, uh, after the, the American Revolution, he's really involved in, he's a British loyalist who is seeking into a lot of plots. And he does, like, like, like David said, doesn't have a standalone chapter could have had a standalone chapter. Uh, at one point, there was, I think I had like 16 people that I wanted <laughs> to have in this chapter. We had to narrow it down for size mm. for publication. Um, but Conley is one of these characters that is always fermenting, you know, problems on the frontier. He's a British uh, loyalist who is even trying to take over New Orleans at one point. Um, and so he's he's always trying to scheme and create disruption for the young Republic. So what are the lessons that can be learned from these scoundrels as a nation and as human beings? Yeah, that's a great question because many of the, the examples that you think of most readily are negative ones, right? So, so uh, don't, uh, don't scheme with the enemy to turn over military installation. <laughs> that's the lesson from the uh, Benedict Arnold chapter. Uh, don't press your luck with treason definitions, right? Uh, if you're if you're Aaron Burr, I think one of the things for us looking back, um, it's helpful to contemplate other paths that the United States could have taken. Um, you know, sometimes so sometimes people I know students that I have, right? They 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 think they don't see the other paths that could have been taken. This is the story that they're trying to master in the class, and where we've ended up today was where we were always heading 250 years ago. Um, so I think it's useful to see that there are these other people in the same founding generation. The founding generation is not just six guys like, uh, you know, the founding fathers. It's a whole, there are a million, there's, you know, a million people who live in, in uh, the United States during this period. So there's lots of people and they have different aims and ambitions. They have different plans for the country. And they, the country's path could have really worked out differently if someone like, uh, Burr had achieved his goals, if someone like uh, Arnold had gotten what he wanted, if Wilkinson uh, had had more influence than, than he had. Okay, so you can see how the paths could have gone in many different directions. I, I think you, you, David mentions the founding generation, and that's, that's one of the keys that we really wanted to hit home with, is that this, it's not just the founding fathers, it's the founding generation. And sometimes failure helps shape the, the young nation. Um, so that's one of the takeaways is that it is you you're building something larger, a more human picture of that founding era. Um, and people are essentially people. They have human nature and greed and all these things, and that that adds into the story. They are not just, you know, people on the on our money, right? So. right I think one of one of the harder things to confront, um, is that some of these guys were, in, as you hinted at in your question, Steve, uh, some of these guys were instrumental in actually building what the country became. So not just, they weren't just failures, they, they were successful at what they did. Um, so uh, William Blunt, for example, um, the one of the first governors of the territory that eventually became Tennessee, 
he gets a position as government official, high government official in that area, specifically to commit land fraud, right? To amass as large a fortune, large uh, as many as much land as he possibly could. And he was very good at it. He just has an enormous amount of land under his control. And if it hadn't been for Blunt, right, def defrauding veteran soldiers of the American Revolution, uh, creating legislation, pushing through legislation that would push uh, Native Americans off of their land is so it could pass into the hands of um, the American um, um, Americans uh, land speculators like himself. If you have done those things, then um, you know Tennessee doesn't become a state at the time that it does or have the shape that it does. So Tennessee's foundation is thanks in no small part to Blunt and not just Blunt like he does these bad things on one side and he does other good things on the other side and they exist within the same man. No, it's the bad things are what are leading to what we might consider a good outcome, the founding of the state of Tennessee. So how that all kind of wraps around together, I think is an important message from the book. And that's really for readers to kind of puzzle out on their own. Like it is one of the mysteries of human nature, right? Well, how, you know, how do bad people do good things, right? How does good come out of uh, people with, with an evil intent? How do good people end up doing bad things, right? So all those things are all tied together. We see that historical example here in the book. The book is A Republic of Scoundrels, The Schemers, Intriguers, and Adventurers Who Created a New American Nation. The editors, David Head, Timothy Hemis. David, Tim, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us on. It's been delightful. Thank you, and, Steve. And this is Speaking of Writers.